Amen. Tell you what, God does so much when we give Him everything in worship. He just, He does so much. He, he, he downloads more to me during, I mean, if, if you ever see me just sitting down and just kind of, if my head's bowed or whatever, please don't think I'm not engaged. It, it's, it's because God's giving me something. And usually it's overwhelming. But when we worship Him, when our hearts, and not just when we sing, but when our hearts break out of our little literal will, and we worship Him with everything that we are. There's just something that happens. It happens personally in a life. Like, it, it doesn't have to just happen here. It happens anytime that we do that. But there's something special about when His bride comes together to do that. Let's pray. Father, we worship you, we praise you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the sending of your Son and the tremendous sacrifice that that was and is. We thank you that you are here. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that we can count on being here because you have said so. So, Father, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit to remain and to be thick in this place. For it is he who opens our eyes to your word. It's because of your Holy Spirit that we can have receptive hearts to understand what it is that you're wanting to speak. So we thank you. We look forward to what you have this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Those who were here last week, and I think most were, last week was different. In many ways, right? In one obvious way is how many church services do you know of or have you heard of that are three hours long and nobody disengages? See, that's God. That's God. But last week, for those of you who don't know, and and it was interesting because I apologize for those online because the Lord told me right off the bat not to put it live. And I figured, okay, well, we can record it and we'll upload it later. And he literally erased the recording. <laughs> he, he did it right before my eyes. He, he erased the recording. And so we still had the videotape. And I thought, okay, well, maybe. And he said, no. We keep the videotape for just for the archives, but it wasn't to go out on the, on the airwaves. 
what God did last week was significant, and I didn't fully understand what that really meant until just this morning. That's what he was downloading to me as we were worshiping. What I did understand last week is, is that we went to court, right? We were in a very special court. It's a court that I've been in before. I've been in at least two other times that I am aware of. And because I don't always have sight, I could have been in there more than that. But this was the second time I had been in there with the destroyer. And laying out evidence. And we, we all kind of thought, well, okay, maybe this is the end. You know, this, this is, is the end of, of having to deal with this destroyer. And, and I, I knew about three quarters of the way through that wasn't the case. However, I kept asking the Lord, okay, what, what is this? If, if we're not laying down further evidence to bind him, then, then what is this about? And I kind of, I kind of wrestled with that all week. What was this about? And when he told me this morning, and, and even what he's telling me right now, it just brings so many things into perspective that I didn't realize until now. See, the, the destroyer was not there for his own trial. He was there to witness. He was there to witness what was going on. Now, I knew last week, I, the only thing I knew about Sunday, what was going to happen, I didn't know anything prior to Sunday morning during worship. All I did know is that we would be screaming. <laughs> right? I knew, I knew the Lord, and, and I thank the Lord for telling me that ahead of time, because it, it probably would have caught me off guard a little bit. <laughs> but I knew that, that this idea of a breaker was going to happen. I knew the night before, and, and I, I shared it last week, the night before, just as we were praying as a family with Yvonne to, to go to sleep, he, he, he laid out for me a three-point outline, and that's, that's what we went through last week. But it was all about this idea of breaking atmospheres. Okay, Not just the atmospheres that are around us, like, like in this service, which, which I think is at least at least from my knowledge that's where most of the church goes we want to break the atmosphere in this place so that god can do his work in this place see last week was something different than that it was a literal breaking of atmospheres that would affect global atmospheres this courtroom that I was in with the destroyer. I think I've, I've described it before. It's a different court. It's not a court filled with people. It's not a court filled with anything. In fact, it's very dark. That's partly what confused me about this court. I've been able to see pieces of it. And then I've been given confirmation of other things that have been described. 
like last week when Shannon described it and, and other times that, that it's been described to me. But these doors on the outside are huge. Some 300 feet tall, if you can imagine that. They're, they're almost like a wood bronze. An old wood with, with this bronze. I don't know. They're old. And I love doors. I don't know about you guys. I, I love doors. Old doors are my favorite thing in the world. When we used to work down in, in Mexico, my favorite thing about San Miguel is that everything is cool about the door. And the door is like, like you, you may not have a cool house, but you will have a cool door. <laughs> right? And it was awesome. The oldest doors that they have down there are some 400 years old on a cathedral down there. And, and it's wild to go up and, and look at these things. And they, I, I want to say they probably stand 15 to 16, 17 feet tall. And all this old, kind of at one point was ornate wood. Just amazing. But imagine that same look. And it's on these 300 foot high doors. And it's double doors. And what's interesting is the very, I remember the very first time that I was taken into this courtroom. I remember the, cause Shannon was with me and she, she's going to the courts with me and I, I can't remember, can't remember what the circumstance was. But I remember the Lord would not let her go in, but he would let her see. And, and I said, okay, you've got to describe everything to me as I, as I'm going in there and she, she, you know, I asked for entrance. And I, I said, I said, Lord, will you grant me entrance? And she said, the door opened just enough for you to squeeze through. <laughs> I'm thinking, these are 300 foot doors. Right? But it was just enough for me to squeeze through. And then I went in and he closed the door. Well, last week, it, it, let, let me finish explaining The first time, I want to explain the rest of the court because it's going to make sense to you in a minute. Shannon was describing to me the very first time I was in there, and the only thing I saw the first time were the doors. And I didn't even see that they were 300 feet. I just was mesmerized by the detail and and just how ancient these things looked. That ought to click in your mind a little bit. Open ye ancient doors. Right? I was so stuck on, on that, but I, when I got in there, I didn't see anything, and she described it to me, and she said, when, when, when I was in there, she said it was a long, almost like a long, it wasn't a hallway, it was, it was a cathedral, but it was long. It was long, and all she could see was the floor was this complete gloss black. It was like a shiny black, almost like a black marble without seams, completely seamless, but it was black. And she said the only light in that entire place was emanating from the throne of God. And she said his throne was huge. It was enormous. But yet it was not lighting the whole place up like here. You could see every detail about here. But in that courtroom, you couldn't. 
She saw a balcony, and, and that's also another thing that I've seen. Again, very ornate. Down each side, just this balcony. And on the second floor, I've seen warring angels just standing at attention. Not, not, not there casually. But they're, they're there as warriors. And again, that didn't make sense to me. You know, this was not a courtroom like the court of accusation where you go in and the accuser, see, the accuser wasn't even there. Nobody else was there. When I was in there, I was, I was by myself with these angels and the Father. And Jesus was at his right. Well, just this morning, or, or before I say that, remember what happened last week. And this is something that... I knew was significant, but it escaped me as to what it meant until this morning. But do you remember, as we shouted, pieces began to break off the ceiling of that courtroom. Do you remember? Remember Shannon explaining that? And by the third shout, the entire ceiling had been gone, completely gone. And I didn't even understand at the time, but, but the, the Lord gave me this impression, and, and this is what he confirmed this morning, is that it was similar to the veil being torn in the temple. It was like God, because the, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. It wasn't man did it. It was torn. When Jesus Christ died, the, the veil ripped. And that, that, that veil was between the Holy of Holies and the outer court, the holy place. The Holy of Holies was the throne of God. See, so there was a ceiling coming down, bringing exposure. Didn't understand that. Until this morning, what he told me that that court was. See, in heaven, there are representations of everything. That court represents the bride. Represents the church. A floor that is not supposed to be black is black. Halls that are not supposed to be empty are empty. And it's more of it's more of a of a looking at the fact that this building is something special instead of what's in it. And yet it's still illuminated by the Father. Because see, the bride is his children. We are his children. Whether we let His Holy Spirit do His work in us or not, we are His children if we've accepted Him into our hearts. But the reason why the the destroyer needed to be there was because the destroyer's hold over the church has been significant. Now, we're, we're talking about the church. We're not just talking about people that say they're a church, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ. We're talking about the bride. We're talking about those who have accepted him into their hearts, but yet that's where it finishes. 
It doesn't go beyond that because God doesn't really rule in their heart. That's the atmosphere that was broken on Sunday. That has been built up over 2,000 years. That is the atmosphere. Does that mean the work's done? No, that means the work just began. It's only just begun. But see, there is an opportunity. There is a corridor opened for the bride. For the bride, for you, for me, to allow ourselves to be used of God in the destruction of this destroyer, in the destruction of what he represents, what comes against the church. See, now, I haven't had a picture of what it's going to look like. But he did tell me that that floor is going to change. That floor isn't supposed to be black. That room isn't supposed to be dark. You can, By the way, you can take old wood. I love this. You can take old wood and it still look like it's aged, but it look healthy. By putting proper maintenance into it. You take a little bit of tongue oil and you put that across old wood and wow, that's really cool. That looks awesome. You still see the age, but you it brings out the beauty in it. They really need to do that to that one down in San Miguel. <laughs> but it brings out the beauty. That's what, that's what God wants to do. He wants to bring out the beauty in his bride. He wants to bring out the beauty in the church. But it begins with individual hearts. It begins with with us, and I'm going to focus here on us. Because we have a calling in this place. Not just within this church, but this church has a calling within the bride. We're to be warriors for the bride. By the way, got news for you. I know we're already hated. We're going to be hated. It's just like you see happening in in the government today. You have an outsider come in that doesn't play by the rules of the government. He flips it upside down. Why? Because he intended to? No, because he can't do anything else. He will go in and destroy. That's his job. That's his job. Do you understand that what he is destroying isn't the government? What he's destroying are the strongholds of the enemy. You're called to the same thing for the bride. See, we're not just to feel good about what God is doing here and then assimilate into what the church is doing. You know, well, well, so we get along with the other churches around here. Let, let's just kind of, okay, we'll, we'll do it this way with them so they feel like we're part of what they're doing and we uh, go church. Wow. If that's what you want, you're in the wrong place. Because that's not what God wants. God, God wants the purity of hearts to just say yes to him, not worry about what we're going to be thought of. So, 
And, and I, I don't want to prophesy that we're going to be hated. Okay, because we're going to be loved too. Okay, but we are going to be hated. Just like the destroyer hates us. See, do you think the destroyer hates all of the church? No, you know what? Much of the church is no threat to him. And that's, that's the sad part. So what God wants to do in you, you have a responsibility way beyond what you think this church is. Way beyond. And he is putting all the elements in place to do that very thing. But see, it's, it's about a perspective. One, of understanding your calling. Understanding and embracing what he has for your life with no fear. With no fear. But two, then stewarding that in a way that it grows. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to go to two different passages this morning. We're going to begin here just for a moment, because this is, this is Paul. Timothy was one of Paul's sons in the faith. In other words, Paul had led Timothy to the Lord. Timothy then became, became a preacher. Paul had laid hands on him. He had entrusted with him and, and, and anointed him and prayed over him certain gifts that, uh, that uh, came into Timothy's life for his ministry. And this is, this is the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And I, I just want to begin. Uh, let's see. Let's just, let's start at verse three. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith that dwelt, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I want to recognize something here real quick. Because we, we always talk about the fact that fear is a spirit. Okay? Fear is a spirit. You can cast off a spirit. You can come against a spirit. Right? But notice the opposite of that here. Notice the opposite of that. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So the very working in your life that is that Holy Spirit working through you is also a spirit. And I, I know that's kind of academic. Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit. But, but sometimes we think of ourselves as, well, I fight off fear. No. I mean, you could try. And, and not even saying that it won't work, because, because oftentimes it can. How, how many have been in a situation that is scary, and yet you still plow through it? I mean, all of us, right? 
I, I remember when I played football. Um, I loved football. I loved the hitting. I loved loved all of that. Yeah, it, it was a real loss when I couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> but but the thing is, I had so much anxiety right before the game would start. I mean, I mean, on the on the kickoff, we we were, you know, uh, my position. Um, was different, but I, but I also played on the kickoff team, right? So I would run down and attempt to tackle. Okay. So the, I mean, just the anxiety, cause we, we were in high school, uh, college was a little bit different, but high school, we were the, we were a tiny team. I mean, I think we had 35 players. Total. No, maybe not even that much. I mean, we all had to play both offense and defense. We were the only school like that. Everybody else was bigger. We played schools that, that I mean, I was the biggest kid on our team, and, and I wasn't as big as I am now. Right? I was tall, but I was like this. Okay, so so when, when, when you go out and you're about to play, and you go out and you, you kind of do the warm-ups, that's, that's when you try to intimidate the other team. Right? Because you yell and you're all there, you see how big they are and you cross each other in the hall. And, but it was just the opposite. It was like that's their, that's their opportunity to intimidate us. Because we were always smaller. And, and I'd go by and thinking, okay, I'm going to have to hit him. I'm going to have to hit him. I'm, I'm probably going to have to hit three of them and, <laughs> and, and all of this. And so I'd be so anxious going into it. And, and going on to the battlefield, the, you know, the, the field of play, the second that, that kick went, then your adrenaline is just flying and you're like, oh, this is going to hurt, this is going to hurt, this is going to hurt. Smack. Then it's fine. <laughs> then I'm like, oh yeah, I'm good. <laughs> now we can go after them and feel good about it the rest of the time. So, see, we can work through fear in a human way. They do it on the battlefield, on the real battlefield, all the time. You know, the, there, there, was a, um, there was a Navy SEAL that was just given, uh, I, think it, I think it was the Silver Cross, right, or Medal of, Medal of Honor. And, and it was for, he, he, he was in this, um, uh, I guess they were ambushed or something, but a small team that was being fought. He literally fights through machine gun nests to save his comrades. And, and by the way, you know, most of the Medal of Honors are given out to those who, who died in the process. He didn't. It took a little bit of courage for him to step out onto that battlefield knowing that he's getting shot at and will probably die. Now, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but see, you can fight that in human ways. You can gain the courage to do it because you believe in a cause more than you believe in your life. You don't have to be a Christian and do that. Military's filled with people like that. Praise God. But see, that's not what this says. This says you're not given a spirit of fear that you have to cast off. You're given a spirit that will cast it off. Right? That will cast that spirit of fear off. See, you step onto the battlefield with power that 
people that are not Christians don't know, don't have, don't understand. And yet, we don't utilize that. Whatever was going on in Timothy's life, Paul wanted him to know, you have a spirit that will literally fight against that spirit of fear coming against you. And it's the Holy Spirit. Let's keep going. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony. Now, remember what's going on around them. People are, you know, the Christian church is being persecuted. This is not where Rome is embracing the church. Right? They want to destroy the church. So that's why Paul's saying, you don't have to be afraid. He who is in you is stronger than he who is in the world. Okay, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Wait a second, this was supposed to be a good life. No, what did he say? Share in suffering. Do you know what that means? He's telling Timothy, insert yourself into the suffering. Don't bring suffering upon yourself. That's not what it's saying. See, there's suffering going on because in this case there was persecution. He's saying, insert yourself, stand up, be counted, insert yourself into that suffering. For the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to be a holy calling. Not because of our works but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Do you know your calling didn't just happen recently in your life? Your calling has been there before creation itself. It's what God had planned to do with you. Verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been entrusted to me to guard his life. So Paul says, Peter, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And this is the key to this, this first passage. Guard the good deposit Entrusted to you. Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted in you. See, God has placed in you a calling that you are to guard, you are to nurture, you are to take care of. You can't be flip about it. You can't just assume, well, someone else will do it. Or this calling in my life, I know it's important, but, but God, right now, this other thing's more important. I gotta pay my bills. I got, I gotta, I gotta get married. I can't do this calling, Lord, with, without having like a partner. 
Right? There are things that I want to do before I do your work, Lord. I get it. I was there. But you know what? God needs you to put Him and His calling first. He said the rest will be there. Don't worry. Right? Matthew 6.33, the rest will be there. So we are to guard, to safeguard that calling that God has in our lives. And we do that through relationship. How do you guard your relationship with somebody else? How do I guard my marriage with Alexis? Well, first and foremost, I talk to her, right? That would be kind of an awkward relationship if we didn't really talk much. If we didn't share life. How could I guard that relationship if I am not in her life? How can you guard God's calling in your life if you are not in Him and He is not in your life? If you just appoint Him to be there on Sunday mornings, or perhaps on Tuesday nights, or maybe five or ten minutes every morning when you do your devotions. This is my God time. This is when I point you to be here, God. Why didn't you show up? I thought, I thought you'd be there thicker than that. No, it's because when He comes, He never wants to leave. He wants to stay. You know, when Alexis and I first got married, it was interesting because the first, I don't know, a year, maybe a year of our, of our marriage, something like that, I, I had what I would call a normal job. Where, where you're an employee somewhere and they, they pay you to show up. Right? And, but it wasn't long after that that, that, I became an entrepreneur and went into business for myself and, and, and I think it was two years into our marriage, um, then we had our first business and we were working together. Boy, what a difference. I mean, has its good and it's bad. You know, even right now, I, I technically work from home, right? So, so it has its good and it's bad. You know, there, there are bad times when, when, you know, you just both need space. If you ever come to our house and you see a sheet hanging up in that walkway between our kitchen and our living room, it's because there was space needed. <laughs> right? And, and that living room chair, that's like my office. And, and she's in the kitchen and she, I, I just need space. Tack it up. <laughs> but then there's the flip side. Do you know that our relationship has been built because of love for each other and spending time with each other to where, yeah, we may get on each other's nerves when we're together 24-7 all the time. And with those breaks, then it's, it's incredible. Now, she needs more breaks than I do. i got to remember that. Because I'm one of those... <laughs> right? But it's the time we've spent together that makes our marriage strong. 
It's the time that we spend together investing in each other, investing in communication, even if it's talking about other things. Because we don't, we don't talk about us all the time. And in fact, we probably talk more about external things and, and how that happens to be, you know, working into God's will and stuff like that. We've, we probably talk politics as much as we talk about anything. But do you see, we're on the same page. Because we invest time together. Because we desire to grow that relationship and that. You, you cannot have a strong relationship with God without doing the same thing. You've got to spend time with Him. Now, now I, I get that on a surface level, that, that's hard. You know, because you can't pick up the phone and hear His voice on the other, other line. Now, I'm not saying He can't do that. Because he can speak audibly. But that requires less faith. And faith is what he wants. Faith is what builds your relationship with him. So you have to spend time. I want you to turn to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. God lays out here exactly how we're to build this relationship, exactly how it is to produce in our lives. And, and it's funny because when he showed me this, this passage, you know, I, I, I was reeling yesterday, you know, because sometimes he'll give me kind of inklings throughout the week or kind of give me a thought and then he'll develop a thought and then, and then by Sunday morning he'd just lay it out and, and I'm fine with that. This week had no thoughts. I mean, except being hungry. Right? No thoughts. It's like, and so I get to Saturday and I'm like, Lord, okay, I know I'm not supposed to feel anxious. You know, I know you promised, but, but I, I'm feeling a little bit anxious here. And will, will you, will you at least give me some scripture? And he said, okay. He said, turn to Second Timothy. I did. We just read that one. And then he said, turn to Second Peter. And so when I turned here, I said, oh, Lord, I think I've preached on this like a bunch of times. You, you, are you sure? Am, am I hearing right? Maybe, maybe I'm supposed to stay in, first, in Second Timothy. He said, no. He said, because this is something people need to hear over and over and over and over and over again. So we're going to hear it again. Let's start in verse 3 of uh, Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Do you know you have been given great promises? Not just in your life but to use your life with. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying he is giving you promises so that you can become partakers of him. Of his divine nature. He's given you promises that you can have relationship with him. And you can act upon that relationship and live in it every day. 
Just like I explained with Alexa and I. He's giving you these promises so that you can partake. That you can take from His hand and share with Him a piece of Him. That's what it's saying. But then it goes on. Verse 5. For this very reason... For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Understand here, it begins with faith. Faith is the foundation of everything that you're going to do as a Christian. Everything you're going to believe, everything you're going to pronounce, everything begins with that foundation of faith. But it's not just faith. See why? Because it says faith without works is what? It's dead. Right? You can have all the faith in the world if, if you just lock yourself in a closet somewhere and you don't allow your mouth to be used or your feet or hands to be used. It's dead. I mean, awesome job with the faith, though. <laughs> but it didn't do any good. Didn't help anything. Didn't even help you, by the way. Right? He said, so supplement that faith with virtue. What is virtue? You know, we think of virtue as cleanliness. We think of virtue as as somebody who just does right all the time, right? But it's it's so much deeper than that. Because virtue is not something that you take on. Virtue is something placed on you because of decisions that you have made. There's a difference. I, I, I love, when I think of virtue, what, what that word really means is valor. Okay? We just talked about the Medal of, Va- Medal of Honor, Medal of Valor. Right? It's given for someone with a, a, a different perspective in their life. Right? And, and I often think of that when I think of valor, when I think of virtue, I think of my favorite character in the world. And, and unfortunately, not a Christian character, but I, I love it. I love it. How many know Man of La Mancha? Right? I mean, I grew up with this thing. I had, I had it, now this was back when we had records, kids, sorry. Not CDs, not DVD, actual vinyl, yes. I had the Man of La Mancha LP. I, I still have it. And I think I've listened to that I don't know, five, six, seven thousand times. I mean, I would listen to it every day. And if you don't know who Man of La Mancha is, it's actually a play. It was written to be a play. And um, Man of La Mancha was this landowner that, that was kind of getting old, um, maybe a little decrepit, you know. But he was... Kind of an old knight, if you will. It was in the days of the knight in shining armor type thing. He was old, too old to really do anything, but in his heart, he wanted to do everything. And, and so he, he goes out and he's, he's riding in his mind, he's on a steed, which really was a, a, kind of a broken down donkey. Right? He, he, he had this armor that in his mind was, was this shining armor, this valiant armor and this long, you know, spear and all this. And, and in reality, he's this broken down mess. 
And he goes in the plane, he goes and he fights these, these things like there's this one thing he fights, it's a windmill. Okay, yeah, which is a giant. He sees it as a giant, it's just this windmill. He's fighting this windmill. And I, I, he wins. <laughs> Not sure how. And then he falls in love with, with this, this girl that he sees as virtuous and she is, she is everything to him and she's a prostitute. And she's like, I don't even know why he loves me. And they're in this town and he's, he's proclaiming his love for her and how virtuous she is and, and she's like, no, I'm not. And all the townspeople are laughing at him. All the townspeople think he's got few screws loose, right? But you know what happens over time? He literally wins her heart. And she begins believing in the virtue that he placed on her. Do you see? Now, I know I said it wasn't Christian, but man alive. That is the story of Jesus Christ and the bride. But I, I, I love him. I, it, in fact, my favorite song of all time is from that play. To Dream the Impossible Dream. Alexis knows I wanted it at my funeral. Right? There we go. It is not my funeral yet. If I would have been smart, I would have had that ready, but I didn't know I was going to be doing it. So there you go. But that, that, that song talks about to dream the impossible dream. What was the dream? It wasn't about achieving or getting something. You know, we do things to receive. People go into business, I don't care what they tell you, they are not there to help humankind, they're there to make money. Now, if they can help humankind along the way, that's awesome, right? But they go into business to receive something. We go and get a job to receive something. Oftentimes we build friendships to receive something. But see, that's a wrong perspective. That wasn't Man of La Mancha. That was not his perspective. His name was Don Quixote. You've probably heard that name. See, his perspective was valor before anything. To dream the impossible dream. To fight the unbeatable foe. To move when your arms are too weary. To go where the brave dare not go. It's extraordinary. When you have virtue and you have valor, it is because your perspective is different. Your perspective is, this is how it should be. And I will walk in that perspective, whether it is that or not. Because as I walk in that perspective, my surroundings will change. That's that whole play. That's that whole play. It's, it's just an extraordinary thought. I, I know growing up, I, that, that was just built in me from as long as I can remember. You know, I wanted to join the military so bad and, and go into the special special teams because not not because I thought it was cool 
but because I wanted to fight for something bigger than myself. I wanted to believe in something and fight for something bigger than myself. Do you know that that is exactly what Jesus Christ is calling you to? You're fighting for something bigger than yourself. You're fighting for the bride. So our expectation is based upon our perspective. Is your perspective one that you will walk in in valor? That's what virtue is. So, so the very first part of this is supplement your faith with the perspective of walking the way you should walk. And once you have that, then supplement virtue or that perspective with knowledge. See, once you have a perspective of, of what it's supposed to be like, then you need to gain the knowledge of how to do it. Father, I know you have called me to this pathway. I ask that you show me what I need to do on this pathway. I need the knowledge to react in you. I need your perspective, Father. That's how I can then walk down that pathway. So you supplement that, that virtue, the faith with virtue, the virtue with knowledge, and the knowledge with self-control. Ooh, that's a tough one. Especially on a fast. Right? That's a tough one. You can't have the self-control until you have the knowledge. Because the knowledge tells you why you need the self-control. You know, think about it, a fast. We've been on a fast now for 15 days. We've finished 15 days, right? If we don't understand the knowledge of what this is doing, then you're going to really struggle with the self-control of doing it, right? You're going to struggle with the why. Why in the world am I, am I not eating when I can eat and everybody around me is eating, if I don't have the understanding, I may not know what God wants to do in it specifically, but I have the knowledge and understanding that he's going to move in it, that he's going to work in it. If I gain that knowledge from him, from his word, then I can step into that self-control and say, no, no, what God has for me is way more important than eating that cheeseburger. Right? It's way more important. So I can walk in that self-control because I have the knowledge of what he wants to do. And I've already begun it with the perspective of a warrior. The perspective of valor. That from my perspective, I can't let it fail. I can't succumb to the... 15 million, literally, commercials on food. <laughs> I, I swear they really happen more when you're fasting, don't they? I, Michael and I were counting yesterday, and four out of five commercials were all about food. Yeah. I have never wanted to go to Arby's so bad in my life. <laughs> we have the meats. 
Right? Yeah, I want the meat. Four out of five. And I think the fifth one probably, it, it, it may have been something else, but they were probably barbecuing or something. Right? But when you have the right perspective, you supplement that, right? You supplement the virtue with the knowledge of why you're doing something. Then you can have the self-control to maintain through that. God gives you the strength to do that. And then there with the self-control, then with, with steadfastness. Literally the self-control and the, the repetition of this process produces steadfastness. Right? It's reliability. We talk about people, people being reliable. We know people that are reliable. Well, I know if this person says they'll do this, they are reliable, I know they'll do it. That's what steadfastness is. Right? To be steadfast on a course means that you don't deviate from that course. You're steadfast. Steadfast cannot happen without those prior things going on. Right? If you're walking a course and you don't have the knowledge as to why, if there's no understanding as to why you're walking down this path, you're going to have a difficulty staying on that path. If you haven't learned self-control, you're going to have difficulty staying on that path. If you, if you haven't learned that that perspective of valor is more important and the most important aspect in your life in terms of understanding Christ, then, then you, you, can't, you can't be steadfast in that. All those things have to be in place. And steadfastness with godliness. What does that word there mean? Let's look. Uh, holiness, godliness, reverence, respect, a piety toward God, understanding the gospel scheme. Right? So from this, that steadfastness begins to produce godliness. Begins to produce a perspective that you cannot produce on your own. We've seen it ourselves, even in giftings. We, we begin to see our relationship. We see Jesus Christ. We see the Father. We see the Holy Spirit differently than we have before. We're given eyes to see in godliness. You can't have that with all the other things, without the other things before it. So many Christians, and this is what drives me insane about, forgive me, but drives me insane about some of the churches today. Or even the schools today. Even seminary today. Forgive me for that one. See, it's not about the knowledge that you, you learn. The knowledge is important. Don't get me wrong. But, but if that's all it is, see, you cannot, you're, you're working through pride if you're working simply from knowledge. 
Because your pride is in that knowledge. Forgive me, but that is the church. That is the current place of the church. It breaks my heart. See, to them, knowledge is supreme. I know that, and I can say that because I was that. Right? I knew that I've taught the Word of God for 30 years. And I knew that if I knew something that my class didn't know, or I could teach them something that they didn't know, then I'm really going to have an impact on their life spiritually. And, and understand, that came from a good place. But see, I didn't recognize at the time it came from a place of pride. I, I got my reward for that. I got it because it filled my pride. But see, that's not what God wants. God wants us to let Him do it. So it produces this godliness. Now, once God has done this in us, I want you to understand the process here. Once He has done this in us, we just went through what? Five things or whatever it was. And that He's producing in us. Now, He takes that and He pours it out to others. It's kind of like that, I've given the example of the 55-gallon drum. You put a hose in it, you turn the hose on it. Nothing comes out for a while till it fills up. Once it's full, then it starts coming out, starts pouring out the edges, right? Because it's full. That's the process that God takes us through in being used in a proper way. So then he says, take this godliness, take this, this full 55-gallon drum and put it with brotherly affection. What does that mean? See, the word there, really, because then it talks about love right after that. Don't confuse the two. See, the first one has to come first because it's about perspective. See, we can love individuals. I did. I, I would have told you 10, 15 years ago, yeah, I love people. Just happened to be the people I wanted to love. You know, I, I may not even know them, but, but you know what? I, I really kind of click with them. Yeah, I can say I love them. But see, I didn't understand at that time what real love was. See, real love didn't base my feelings about them on whether I'm going to love them or not. Right? Real love wasn't about, well, I, I kind of click with them. I, I, you know, I, I know them. I get to know them. I, we like the same things, you know, so, so yeah, I love them. No, how about somebody totally the opposite of you? How about somebody that gets on your last nerve? Can you say you love them? See, what it's talking about here, about brotherly affection, it is again that perspective of seeing them as God sees them. I'll tell you, that, that right there, in a nutshell, is what changed my perspective with people. All people. Lord, show me through your eyes. Show me how you feel about these people. I can tell you that by the time I finally got on a plane and went to Nigeria, I was in love before I ever met them. 
I was in love with those people before I ever set foot in that country. Why? Because I had a perspective of brotherly affection. I had an expectation that I would love them. See, it all starts in our innermost paradigms. What are we going to let go in our innermost paradigms? Are we going to look at the bride and say, I'll love them, doesn't matter who they are. God, give me that perspective. See, he can't, he's not going to give you that perspective if you have not already built up some of that relationship with him that's portrayed in godliness. Otherwise, it's just going to be human. See, when we build through this process and he fills us up, now when we have a perspective that I'll love anybody, then it can be the Holy Spirit working through us to do that. And then finally, he says, and with that brotherly affection, with love. Now, what is that? How is that different than brotherly affection? It's because one is perspective. The other is application. See, God's not going to put the whole bride in your life. Right? He, 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 you, you may go your whole life and only have exposure to a few hundred people. Or some more than others. And, and I'm not talking about standing up in, in front of somebody and talking. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about relationship. Right? You may have a few hundred people in your lifetime that you have an opportunity to one-on-one pour into. And so what he's talking about is, is having a perspective of loving everybody, then taking the ones that he places in your lives and loving them. See, what is love? Jesus said, love is being willing to give your life. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's love. Boy, that's a pretty high bar. Do you love? I I would imagine there are people in your life that you would say yes. You know, yeah, I, I would die for my wife. I would die for my kids. Wouldn't want to, but I would. Right? We we all have somebody that we would die for, probably. That's not what it's talking about. See, pure love does not separate the act from the receiver of that act. That's why Jesus died for everybody. Do you know Jesus did not just die for a few of us? He did not just die for the people that would accept him. Do you know he died for the people that will never accept him? Doesn't mean they receive his gift because they have to accept it. But he still died for them. He still loved them. He put himself out there regardless of how they were going to treat him. See, that's the love. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, and and the word there is really ever increasing. It's, It's almost like this perpetual movement of cycle. Okay, all the cycle that we just read through, it's not like, okay, I achieved stage three and we're finally at stage three and we're good, now we're working on stage four. No, 
No, think of it that the whole thing is a stage. I went through the whole process at this stage. Okay, now God lifts me up a little bit and I'm continuing to go through that process at this new stage. You'll never, ever stop doing that process. You'll never stop it. Because it's that process that draws us closer to the Lord. It's that process that literally is going to bring the readying of the bride. Right? So it's a perpetuating, continuing process. Again, verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are ever increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Paul here is talking to Christians. This is not to the world. He is talking to Christians. And he's saying, if you don't recognize this process, you're blind. If you don't recognize relationship with Jesus Christ, you're blind. You may still be saved. You may still be justified. We'll still see you in heaven, but you are blind. You are blind to what he wants to do in you. You're blind to what he wants to do in the world. He's saying, these must be present for you not to be blind. Therefore, brothers, verse 10. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. See, it doesn't say you'll never fail. It says you'll never fall. Failure oftentimes is a part of the process. Certainly, we've learned that with the gifts. Learning to step forward in faith in something that we're not real sure about, but we're going to step. You know, sometimes there, there is failure. I've been there so many times. I mean, you, you hear it all the time, these, these people that have, you know, business people that have made mega, mega millions, billions of dollars, and have these incredible businesses more times than not, they went through a process of failure after failure after failure after failure. But see, that's different than falling. Falling is when your perspective changes. Falling is when you no longer want to live a life of valor. See, going back to Don Quixote again, in his mind, everything was about valor. He would not see bad in anybody. Everything was about fighting for what was right and being willing to give your life doing it. Boy, when you get that perspective in your heart, it changes everything. It changes how you see life. It changes how you see people. It changes what you do in your life. How you treat people. It even changes the very value that you have in your life. See, Don Quixote didn't think low of himself. 
In fact, he thought it was a very high sacrifice to give himself. When you are in Jesus Christ, he is who makes you everything. Do you understand that? You're everything to him. You're everything to the bride. You're everything to his plan. You are not insignificant. You are significant. Your portion is great. So don't allow a false humility because you want you don't want to come across prideful. Don't let a false humility come in and operate through that perspective. It's okay to recognize how important you are to God. But then he takes that perspective and he says, you see how important you are to me. You see how I gave my life to you. You see how, how I, I want to do everything through you. Okay, now take that and lay it down. Take it and sacrifice it just as Jesus did. That's what he wants. He wants you to recognize how important you are to him. And he wants you to lay that down and say, because I am this important to you, my life is yours. Do with it as you will. Use me how you want to use me. My feet are yours. My hands are yours. My mouth is yours. My will is yours. Start telling him that every day. Even if you don't believe it in here, start verbally saying it every day. Go through that whole process. I I tell him that all the time. God, you have my hands. I told him just this morning, my feet are yours. My hands are yours. My mouth is yours. My eyes are yours. My ears are yours. My heart is yours. My will is yours. Say it out loud. Because in those declarations, there's power. There's power for him to act. For him to literally say, you got it. And take it from you. And then fill you with anything he wants to fill you with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we worship you. We praise you. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you do in our lives. Lord, and I pray this morning that you burn into our hearts and our minds this process of relationship. And I know we've talked about it before, but God, here you lay it out into visual paradigms. Each step of the perspectives that we need to have. God, give us the perspective of a valiant warrior where only right is what we fight for. And just as the song says, where we're willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This one? Yeah. Such a good word. Wow, we really need that reminder. Um, I'm going to tell you something that I 
learned this week, and it's difficult, uh, it's difficult for me because it's a difficult concept, but I hope that it will encourage you. Um, I was thinking of the movie Rocky. I don't know if they're, um, most people have seen all of them, but hopefully you can, this reference will make sense to you. You know, when it comes to perspective and context, uh, especially even the first Rocky, you know, when he won the fight at the very end, and he's yelling, Adrian, you know, Adrian, you know. Okay, okay, so some of you have seen it. You know, if you, I was thinking about this kind of, this, this perspective that is, is putting things in context. If they're, throughout the movie, you get the entire story. So at the end, when you see the rough shape that he's in, you're not necessarily thinking along the lines of, oh my goodness, your face. You know, it's, it's like, wow, you won, you know, and, and yet if we were to zero in, let's say we didn't know the whole story and, and there was a, a journalist or somebody that just zeroed in on just his bloody face, just the, um, the, the moans and cries of the few last blows that he took, it would be very easy to deceitfully paint a picture of somebody who just got beat up and who's been completely defeated. And I felt like the Lord was saying to me this week with some of the things I experienced in this fast that, you know, it's like, don't think, and, and, and he addressed it in Second Timothy, don't think that when we're in this battle that there aren't going to be some blows that we'll take. We're going to take some blows. We're going to take some hits. There will be things that will, will bloody our faces. Perhaps to, we have to even slit open our own eye to be able to see. Okay, remember that part? Was that in one or two or whatever? And they had one. Okay, yeah. Oh. I remember the first time I saw that. But the context is that he's the victor. And when we share in the sufferings of Jesus, when we share in Christ's sufferings, of course we are going to take some hits. And I think that as we look at the battle that we're in, I really believe, I, I have felt this way. Maybe I can't speak for anyone else, but I have, I have sometimes actually listened to the lies of the enemy Making me think that, that I'm going to step into the boxing ring with the enemy and not take a hit or two and not come out a little bit bruised sometimes, but that doesn't mean that I lost. And sometimes our circumstances, sometimes things that hit us or emotionally how we feel, we can feel completely lost, but it depends on the perspective. It depends on the context with which we see it. You know, a biblical example of this is in Acts 14, 19 and 20, when Paul Paul and Barnabas were going to Derby and Lystra, and they begin to tell the truth. I mean, they're just telling the truth. And the, the priests there, the people there, rose up against them, got a mob, turned against them, and they stoned Paul near to death, dragged him out of the city. He's laying there apparently dead. And with the believers that were concerned about him, they stood around him. He gets up, and he just marches right back into the city. I mean, you know... If you don't read the end of the verse, you don't get to see that line that changes everything. It's a game changer. You just see that they stoned him and they dragged him out of the city. Oh, bummer. Okay, I guess it's over. No. Apparently, in the New Living, it says apparently dead. But he gets up and he just marches right on. That's the story of victory for us. And if we are not careful to keep the perspective of truth before us, the truth of all that we have when we walk in the power of Jesus Christ. And, and this is a word for me because all of us, nobody likes to get hit. 
Nobody, you know, there's a lot of boxers that would really be great, great, great boxers because they know how to throw a punch, they know how to throw a jab, but they can never take a punch. And that's what makes them not a good boxer. Yep. You've got to be able to take the hits. I got to be able to take the hits in order to win the battle. And that's what sharing in his sufferings means, that I may know him, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power, yes, of his resurrection, but also to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. We need that ability to share with him. And it is going to be rough. And, and it's very difficult to wrap my mind around. Some of the things that I have seen, perhaps I block out my own pain, but some of the things I have seen that my husband will go through is um, difficult. It's difficult. And if it's difficult for me to even think that, being the wife of that, obviously that's probably why I blocked out some of the, my own things that I've been through. Although, when I look back over my journals recently, and again, i got to be in the right perspective when I even look at my own journals. I look at some of the hits and some of the blows that the enemy has hit me with. Some that were devastating. I got a devastating diagnosis. Very, very few people knew. That was ridiculous, absurd, out of nowhere. And I didn't really know what to do with it. And I just prayed over it. And then there was a series of things that happened. And um, there was a, a what I thought was a strange kind of breakthrough. But the next time I went back to the doctor, I was tested on that very diagnosis. And it was clean. And this is not a, it's an incurable diagnosis that I got. It's something I would be living with forever. And yet when I went back, I was tested. And it was not there. Yeah. That is the enemy trying to completely... Destroy your life with lies. And sometimes those lies are things you can touch and feel and that just can wreck you. But it doesn't mean that it's truth. We look at Carson. We know what he's been through. And it's, it's real and it's tangible, but it's not the truth That's right. of what his calling is. That's right. Otherwise, he, just, he can just exist till he checks out. That's not the truth. That's so whatever we're going to go through in this fast... Whatever fellowship of sufferings God calls you to, remember the context. Remember the perspective. Because if we don't remember that, we will never know the power of his resurrection that lives within us. So thank you for that good word. That was really, really encouraging. I want to, before you do announcements, I do want to do something else. Oh, okay. I was just going to talk about the yeah, just real culmination. I, I just, the Lord laid on my heart this. And just we're going to close this part of the service, then we'll have announcements. But I want to play this song for you, okay? It's only a two-minute song. It's a very short song. But no, you, no, we can, we'll, we'll let it run in the video, and we'll stop it after the video. Oh. Oh, good point. Yes, sorry. So for you online, you could go listen to it, just, just YouTube. Um, uh, the the impossible dream and you can listen to it there because they'll make us delete this video so we're going to say goodbye to you online bye. love you all bye you don't need to do that he he does it back there um, but I, but here's what I, I want to play this song but I really want you to concentrate okay now remember this is not a Christian song although it is so much more Christian perspective than anything anything out there but I, I want you to listen to the words. Because it is the epitome of that perspective of valor. And then we'll come back up.
perspective at all. You will do just what that song says. You'll change the world. You'll absolutely change everything around you. <laughs> 